Well, good morning. Welcome. Happy Fourth of July weekend. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us uh, this morning. And those of you joining us online, welcome as well. Um, I do have a book recommendation uh, this morning. Um, it's a book that I read uh, this past week. Um, it is called Night. It is by Ellie Weisel. Um, I believe that's how you say it. He is a Holocaust survivor. Some of you may be uh, familiar with his book, uh, but it's an excellent um, first-person account of the Holocaust. Uh, specifically, he was a young boy um, when he was taken to um, Auschwitz, um, and he was taken late in 1944. So the book does a great job of exposing the horrors, the evil of mankind, um, as well as the ignorance uh, of mankind, especially the Jews in the camp that were thinking, it's 1944, what do you mean? You don't know of Auschwitz. You don't know of the horrors that are going on. Uh, but the thing that I like, uh, that I appreciate about this book is his honesty with him as a Jew wrestling with God. This is a constant theme in the book, and this is why I recommend it outside of it just being a good uh, book on, on the Holocaust. He, he talks about when they're singing in the camp, um, people singing about uh, blessing God's name. He said, blessed be God's name. Why? But why would I bless him? Every fiber in me rebelled because he caused thousands of children to burn in his mass graves because he kept six crematoria working day and night, including Sabbath and the holy days, because in his great might he had created Auschwitz, Birkenau, Buna, and so many other factories of death. How could I say to him, blessed be thou almighty, master of the universe, who chose us among all nations to be tortured day and night, to watch as our fathers, our mothers, our brothers end up in the furnaces. Praise be thy holy name for having chosen us to be slaughtered on thine altar. And so that question of where is God, and he, he, he answers the question for himself in one experience of watching a young boy be hung. He's like, there's God being hung on the gallows. But it's good for us to read that and for us to ask the question, with such suffering evil in the world, where is God? Do, can we answer that? Scripture speaks to it, but can we answer that question? Have we ourselves wrestled with that? Because if we can wrestle with it now before it may come into our lives or into others' lives, we will be all the more equipped and all the more prepared and all the more grounded in our faith. And, and the foreword to the book is good, too, because the foreword is written by a, a Christian friend of, of him, of the author, and, and he gives his answer. He's like, I, this is this is why I wanted him to understand and to see uh, through all of that. So, again, uh, that is called Night um, by Ali Weisel. Um, and then if you're looking for a, a Christian experience on the Holocaust, Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place um, would be a good one. So maybe read both of those in pair. Maybe this one first, and then read Corey Ten Boom's account of her accounts um, in the concentration camp with her and her family. Um, another powerful book. Now, before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Holy and gracious Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the moment before us. We thank you that we were able to gather, that we can come together as one body, that we can sing your praise, that we can reflect on what you have done for us, that we can be reminded of the gospel, we can be reminded of your faithfulness, especially in light of our own faithlessness, in the light of our sins, Father. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to hear your word, to hear your voice, that your spirit would convict us, and that as we are convicted, 
And perhaps as we feel the burden, the weight of our sin upon us, that your spirit would lead us to the well of living water, that your spirit would help us to experience and know the grace of your truth, the, the, the glory of your love, and the life that it brings. And that through conviction we would be encouraged, we would be edified, we would be sanctified, and that we would go out from here, Father, being able to glorify you all the more with whatever you bring before us. So, Father, we thank you again that we're able to do this. We thank you that we're able to hear. So help us to be focused this morning, not distracted. And we ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are coming, or we are at, I should say, at the final warning of Hebrews. We have gone through four of them, and this is the fifth explicit uh, warning passage of Hebrews. And we find that passage in Hebrews 12, 18, through 29. So if you have not already, uh, please open up your Bibles uh, to there. Um, it will be obviously on the screen as it always is, but it's good to have the context uh, before you and to have the passage itself always uh, before you. This warning serves as a sort of summary application of the entire letter of Hebrews. This is the author's final hurrah. It's the crescendo. It's the climax of, of the letter. This is it. Now, of course, we have Hebrews 13, but Chapter 13 is more or less dealing with some final exhortations that aren't directly related to the main points of the letter. So we are going to break this warning um, into three parts. Uh, first, we will have the encouragement uh, found in verses 18 through 24 that the author gives us, that we have come to Mount Zion and not Mount Sinai. Then in verses 25 and 27, uh, we get the warning explicitly stated for us. Uh, do not refuse him. Do not refuse the one who is speaking. And then we'll close with verses 28 and 29, where the author exhorts us in light of the encouragement, in light of the warning, to live and to worship in a manner that is worthy. Now, let's begin with verses 18 through 24 of chapter 12 of Hebrews. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the author starts by telling us, hey, you've come to Mount Zion, you've not come to Mount Sinai. And so once again, we, we see in, in the letter of Hebrews, uh, as the author has done many times before, he starts with the lesser, that is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He starts with the lesser and he moves to the greater, which is Zion. See, Zion represents the new covenant, right? And that's been the author's argument the entire letter. The new covenant's better. The old covenant is inferior. It, it's no longer, it, it does not apply. You don't want to keep going there. You need to leave it behind because if you turn there, you forsake the new covenant. So Zion, the new covenant, is better than Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, as we've talked about before, as the author has presented before, Sinai represents all of the old covenants, right? Not just, not just 
that moment where the Israelites were at Sinai, but all of the Old Covenant because Sinai is where the Old Covenant was inaugurated. Now, let's unpack this. First, how do we know that the author is talking about Mount Sinai? Because if you read the passage, Sinai is not even mentioned. In fact, it took me several readings of the passage to go, wait, he doesn't even mention Sinai. It's like my mind was automatically seeing Sinai in there, but it's not in the text. So how do we know he's talking about Mount Sinai? Well, consider the description. First, Sinai can be touched. It is, it is earthly. See, Zion, we have come to what cannot be touched, meaning it is heavenly, right? And he's already talked about heavenly things earlier in the letter. Heavenly things are the better things, the true things. Earthly things are the shadows. They are the things that point to the greater things. So we have come to this mountain that can be touched. And this place has a blazing fire, darkness, a, a, a tempest, a, a storm, a windstorm, and, and sounds of, of trumpets or, or thunder. It has a voice that makes the hearers beg. And in verse 20, it talks about uh, the order that was given to the people that not even a beast could touch the mountain without losing its life, implying that even humans could not touch it, but not even an animal could touch the mountain. And then in verse 21, Moses is brought into the picture, and the author says, even Moses, right? Remember, he's talked about Moses a few times, and Moses is the most faithful in the house of God. He is the prophet of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, and even Moses trembled in fear of this place. So, so to the Jew, which is the audience of the author, and even to most of us, the event at Mount Sinai immediately comes to mind. It is hard to read this and not think, this is Exodus 19 and, and 20. In Exodus 19, 16 through 19, we get, a, we get the description of God's manifestation on top of the mountain. There Moses records for us. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And, and the hearers begging in verse 19, that comes from us in Exodus 20, verse 19, where, where he says, he said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then the order of not touching the mountain that the author speaks about, that comes from Exodus 19, verses 12 and 13, where God says to Moses, you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast, that's animal, or man, he shall not live. And then in verse 21, the mention of Moses trembling in fear. We actually don't have an explicit account in Exodus of Moses trembling in fear, though it can be implied. But in Deuteronomy 9.19, Moses speaking of this event, specifically the golden calf event, writes, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that Yahweh bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But Yahweh listened to me that time also. So, so therefore, the author is clearly speaking of Mount Sinai. And again, that fits the letter. That fits the context of, of Hebrews. Because again, the author has been arguing the entire letter about how the old covenant is lesser and inferior to the new covenant. 
Mount Sinai was where the covenant was inaugurated and where the people affirmed it. And thus the events of Exodus 19 and 20, they lead up to that affirmation and the ratification of the old covenant in Exodus 24, where Moses, Aaron, and the elders of the people go up and sit with God and eat with God and celebrate and, and ratify the covenant. Now, before we look at Mount Zion, let me bring to you um, one highlight, one key aspect of Sinai that the author really wants us to hone in on, and he's mentioned it before. See, though the mountain is something that can be touched, right, and though God manifested himself physically upon that mountain, no one could draw near, right? When he says, when he talks about Mount Sinai being a mountain that can touch, and then he talks about how no one could touch it, he's talking about Mount Sinai literally is a earthly place. It's a physical place. It, like, it exists on earth. We can actually go touch it. Though in that moment, Exodus 19, they couldn't. But after that, they, when God had left the mountain, they could go back and touch the mountain. But though God had manifest, manifested himself physically upon that mountain, when he was there, no one could draw near to God. No one could go to him. Only Moses could draw near, and only Moses did so. And he did so with fear. Now, that should call to mind what we've talked about with the Holy of Holies, the, the tent and the tabernacle. Who could go into the Holy of Holies? Who could go into where God sat with, among his people one day a year? Only the high priest, and only after much work, and only with, with trembling, right? Making sure, because if they didn't do those, th uh, those uh, sacrifices and the offerings right, God would strike the high priest down. So with Sinai, no one could draw near. So we haven't come to Sinai, which is earthly, which is visible, but we, ha but we have come to Mount Zion. So let's talk about Mount Zion and see what the differences are. When we speak of Mount Zion, Mount Zion is an actual mountain, right? We, we know Mount Zion, it exists, it's part of Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 5, 7 tells us that David took the stronghold of Zion, right? When he captured uh, Jerusalem from, from the Jebusites, um, he and tells us he took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. But again, the author here isn't talking about the earthly Mount Zion. He's talking about the heavenly Zion. Just like there's an earthly Jerusalem that exists, there's also a heavenly Jerusalem that exists. Just as there's an earthly Zion, there's a heavenly Zion, and that is the Zion that he is talking about. We have come to Mount Zion, the one in the heavens. This is the city of the living God. This is God's dwelling place. This is not where he just specially manifests himself. This is where he dwells. This is where he lives. And it is heavenly. It is not earthly, which means it is truer. It is better. It is filled with innumerable angels. Mount Sinai didn't have the angels, not, not visible anyway, uh, to, to the assembly of, of the firstborn. The author is saying you've come to the assembly of the church, those who have been born again. Uh, believers who have been written in the, in the book of life, those who are in, enrolled in, in heaven, you have come to God. And, and note how he characterizes or qualifies how he speaks about God. He calls God as judge of all. He could have picked many characteristics, but he picks this one. To God, judge of all. And why would he mention that? Well, again, he's reminding his readers, his audience, don't forsake God. He will judge you. You go to the old covenant, you will be judged. He will judge all. Those who are persecuting you, those who are tempting you to be led astray, to turn to other things, to trust in other things besides the blood of his son, <coughs> God will judge them. And he will deliver you. 
He will judge you too, and, and, and by judging you, those who are faithful, those who are righteous, by the blood of Christ, you will be delivered. So we've come to God, judge of all, we've also come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Again, another ex expression, another way to talk about believers who have been born again and, and those who have passed on and, uh, to be with, with Christ, to be with God now, and who have been perfected. And then he gets to Jesus, and we most certainly do not want to miss this, but to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant. Right, in Hebrews 8, 6, the author says, As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So once again, as the author continues to repeat himself over and over and over again, the new covenant is better. We have come to the new covenant. We have come to Jesus. We've come to the better mediator, the better priesthood, right? The priesthood of Melchizedek. It is better than the old covenant. And he adds on to it, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel's, right? He's already talked about the witness of, of Abel's blood in, in, in Hebrews 11, but we know that this blood, the blood of Christ, is better because it cleanses us of our sin. The blood of Abel could not do that. The blood of Abel could act as a witness to, to faithfulness and to righteousness, but it could not cleanse us of our sin. The blood of Christ, it perfects us. It allows us to do what the old covenant couldn't allow us to do. Draw near to God. It could allow us to go into the presence of God. And again, this is just a, a, a review of what he's already mentioned. Hebrews 10.22, the author told us, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. See, this is the kingdom, this is the ministry, this is the covenant that we are a part of. This is far greater than Sinai. It's far greater than what Sinai offered. And, and thus, because it is, it is far more glorious than Mount Sinai. Paul speaks of this explicitly in 2 Corinthians 3, 9, 11. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the ministry of Sinai, that's the old covenant. The ministry of righteousness, that's the new covenant, that's the ministry of Christ, must far exceed in glory. So if we have all this glory in Sinai, all this happenings, this, this, this manifestation of God on Sinai, this, this awesome sight. If all that glory happened there, then the glory that comes with the ministry of righteousness, it must far exceed it. And Paul says, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And the authors talked about that. Look, the old covenant had its place. Was it wrong? It wasn't imperfect. It served its purpose, but its purpose is, is gone. It, it's, it's no longer void. It's paved the way for the new covenant, and now we have the new covenant. So why are you turning to the old covenant? It has no power. In fact, it has no, no longer does it have any glory. In fact, the people, Moses and, and the faithful ones who sat at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses and, and, and Joshua when they went up, and the elders who went up on the mountain in, in, in Exodus 24 and ate with God, they're not at Mount Sinai anymore. They're at Mount Zion. So why would you go to the ghost town? Why would you go to where they themselves are no longer at? And this is good news. Now, this news, though, we need to keep in mind is, is double-edged. This is a two-sided coin, so to speak. 
See, we ought to be encouraged by remembering that we have come to Mount Zion rather than Sinai, for, for God is fully and wholly accessible at Mount Zion. And at Mount Sinai, he was not. He, you could not draw near to him. You would be stoned to death. You weren't cleansed. But at Mount Zion, you can draw near, Hebrews 4, 16, draw near the throne of grace, and you can stay there. You can stay next to God. You don't have to leave. You can be there forever. However, on the other side, on the other edge, we need to keep in mind on how we live because we have come to Mount Zion and not Mount Sinai. See, responsibility in Scripture, it increases from the old to the new. It doesn't decrease. Just because we're in the ministry of grace, the law of Christ does not give you permission to sin. If anything, because we have been given more, the expectation for holiness is higher. It is greater, and we, we see this in the teachings of, of, in, the, in the Gospels and, and through the epistles. And this is where the author goes next. He says, we must not neglect what he says. So let's go ahead and read verses 25 through 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So we need to see that we do not refuse the one speaking. But who is the he? Who is the him? Who is the one who is speaking? Well, again, we go back to the start of the letter. Right? We go back to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. This is what the author tells us, the, the, the prologue of, of the letter. The author says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right? Old covenant, Old Testament. Think of those things. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son. So it's his son who is speaking. And then he goes on to tell us who his son is whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then we've spent the last 12 chapters, well, the author took 12 chapters to show us how that is why that's true, and how that works. So the one who is speaking is the Son of God. He is the mediator. He is the high priest. He's of the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's the creator, but not only the creator, that who right now he sustains all things by the power of his word. He is the one who's at the right hand of the Father, and it is his blood that speaks a better word than Abel's. So don't refuse him. We feel like this, this should be obvious, right? You hear this description of somebody, you think you'd listen to him. And the author gives, a, gives us the consequence he, or the motivation behind this. You know, if they, if they did not escape Sinai, how much less will we escape Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem? Now, now when he talks about not escaping Sinai, if they did not escape what happened then, what was earthly, he's talking about the curses of the old covenant. Right now, there are some consequences that happened at Mount Sinai, but... Uh, he's referring to, again, that Sinai represents the whole Old Covenant. He's talking about Deuteronomy 28, right? All, all the plagues, all the fam famines, fa I said that right, famines, fam yeah, famines, all the military defeats, all the consequences for their covenantal unfaithfulness, 
bleeding all the way up to the exile, which involved the Spirit of God leaving their, their temple, leaving their presence. If they did not escape, if they suffered such things, then how much less will we escape what is heavenly? God then spoke from the earth. He spoke to them from the prophets, by, by the angels. And now he speaks to us from heaven, by, from the sun. Will we escape? This warning here forms an inclusio with the very, the very first warning that we covered in Hebrews 2. In Hebrews 2, 1, 3, the author tells us, warns us, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, like much closer attention than what they heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So how will we escape if we refuse him? If we refuse to listen to him? If we deny his words by how we live? Specifically in the letter of Hebrews, by trusting in other things for our salvation, for our sanctification. How will we escape if we ignore the warning from heaven when those who ignored the earthly warning, they did not escape? And, and keep in mind how patient God was with his people. So we must not presume patience from God as approval of sins or unfaithfulness. See, we have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. We've come to something that's greater, better, truer, something that is eternal. Right? What we have now, it will not change, it will not fade, it will not disappear. The old covenant is gone. So how do we apply this? How do we not refuse Jesus who is speaking? Well, clearly, first, the first thing that we must do is we must hear him speak. So how do we hear the Son's voice? How do we hear God's voice? And this is very simple. This is a secret, and this is perhaps as charismatic as I'll ever get with you, telling you how to hear the voice of God. If you want to hear the voice of God, open your Bibles and read. Many churches spend hours, hours, they'll have conferences on this topic, they'll, uh, bookstores will sell curriculum on it, make money off of this topic. This is how to hear the work, Word of God. Check out this video series on how to hear the Word of God, or they'll do a 12-week sermon series on how to hear the voice of God in your life. As if it's complicated, as if it's mystical, as if it's, it, it's a deep, dark secret, and, and only, only, only people, only special people, anointed people, prophets, apostles, whatever you want to call them, or I guess you'd say call themselves, only they know, and they're willing to share it to you. But the thing is, it's not. God didn't make salvation. He didn't hide it in a closet. He's not keeping it a secret from us. We need to consider how much of Scripture, particularly the New Testament, is spent on how to hear the voice of God. Where we're told that we need to hear God speak and, and we need to go to his word, but there's not one word, not one verse, nothing in the New Testament, nothing in the Old Testament. This is how to hear the voice of God. Nothing there. So why do we spend so much time trying to figure out, well, how do I hear the, the voice of God? It's not a mystery. It is a demonic teaching that's born of the devil to focus on hearing the voice of God instead of obeying his word, instead of seeking holiness, which is what the epistles, 
It's what the Gospels focus on. It's not about chasing Pentecost. It's not about doing miracles. You don't ever say, Paul, say, hey, make sure you're doing your miracles. Make sure you're speaking in tongues because if, if you're not, well, you're not hearing God. You're not one with God. Don't ever see that. It's all about keep his commandments. Do as he says. Follow him. Be holy. Die to self. It's the hard things, not the fun things that we think it is. So to hear the voice of God, we must open our Bibles and we must read it. And remember, it's not enough to merely know his word, to memorize his word. We must obey his word. That's what it means to truly hear, to truly listen to someone. It's to actually do what they say. Especially in regard to salvation and sanctification, which again, that's the focus of Hebrews. Right? The author's like, don't turn to the old covenant. Why would you say that you're listening to God when Jesus has said, it is finished. When Jesus says, my blood cleanses you, I am enough. Why would you go back to the old covenant when he's fulfilled it? So don't put the law above the law of Christ, the law of grace. To do so is to forsake, is to blaspheme, it is to profane the blood of Christ. It is to put yourself outside of the camp. And today, for us, and you might be wondering, well, I'm not tempted to turn to the Old Covenant. I'm not tempted to go to the law. Well, the principle remains. Don't turn to anything, anything else outside of the blood of Christ. We don't want to turn to anything that might take away from the blood or anything that might add to the blood that was shed once for all time. Right? The author has talked about this at length. It is a blood not to be shed again. It is a blood not to be offered again. Right? As I've mentioned before, don't trust in the offering of the Catholic Mass. It's heresy. It's a false teaching. It does not save. It cannot save. And, and to practice it, to accept it, is to say the blood of Christ is not enough the first time. You are refusing what he has said when he said it is finished. Don't trust your works. Don't trust your tithing. Don't trust your attendance, your, your church membership, as if those things are enough. I have these things. I see these things. He'll accept these things. No. He won't because there are filthy rags to him. When we do this, when we accept, when we even tolerate these things, we refuse him and what he has said. To tolerate something is to passively ex accept it. If they did not es escape before what was earthly, what makes you think you can escape what is heavenly? After all, as he tells us in verse 26, God shook the earth with his, with, his, with his voice then, but a final shaking remains. And here the author pulls from Haggai chapter 2, uh, specifically verses 6 and 21. But in verse 6, uh, there uh, the prophet records for us, thus says Yahweh of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now, now the context of Haggai 2 is, is Yahweh encouraging his people to finish building the temple. And in doing so, God reminds him that he will judge the nations. That, that's what he means by shaking the earth and shaking the heavens. And as he judges the nations, as he shakes them, the treasures of those nations, they will fill the temple. And that new temple will have a greater glory than the old. So here, the author of Hebrews, he's viewing this text of Haggai as relating to the end of days, to the arrival of Christ's kingdom on earth, hence the focus on yet once more. He's, the point is, there is an appending judgment that is coming. All that is corruptible, 
All that is defiled, profane, and pure will be gone. All that is sinful. So this is why, like, if you don't believe in Christ, you need to come to Christ, and you need to believe upon his name and his blood so that you will be cleansed. Because only by his blood can you be cleansed, regardless of the sin that you've committed, regardless of where you're at in life. And then that blood will keep you cleansed as you continue living a, a life in repentance, and thus you become holy and pure, and you yourself will remain but all that is corruptible, all that is stained with sin or corruption, it will be shaken out. It will no longer be. Only what is holy, only what is pure will remain. And this leads the author to then tell us how we ought to live in response to this reality. So let's read the final portion of verses 28-29. Therefore, in other words, in light of all this, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our god is a consuming fire see we're called to gratitude because we've been given an unshakable kingdom think about that if the kingdom that we have is able to survive the shaking of the heavens and the earth and the dry land and the sea the shaking that's done not by natural forces, but by the force of God. If that kingdom can survive that, can stand that, then that kingdom will forever stand. See, uh, America will be shaken. People think it's being shaken right now. And America will not remain, even though this weekend we celebrate our, our love for America and, and, and the, the freedoms of it, which we're grateful for. But it is temporary. It is not permanent. Our trust shouldn't be in the Constitution. Our trust is in Christ. We have a kingdom that is permanent. The Constitution will one day fade. It's already fading. America will one day fall, but God's kingdom will stand forever. So we have this kingdom now, right? This kingdom isn't in the future. It, it is, but it's not just in the future. We have it now in part, right? We have come. Not you will come to Mount Zion, but we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the kingdom. The kingdom is here where the Spirit is, and one day, as Revelation tells us, heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly Mount Zion will descend, and earth and heaven will be joined together in the new creation. Christ will come, and the fullness of God's kingdom will be here. And yes, we will have it in full, but right now we have it in part. We have a taste of it. Therefore, in gratitude, the author tells us, let us live accordingly by offering to God what is acceptable in terms of worship with reverence and awe. Now, worship here speaks of services offered specifically to God. And yes, our whole life, when we live, we, we live as lives of worship, right? What we do, everything that we do is an offering to God. But here, the author is especially focusing on what we offer God in ministry as one body. Think again of the context of the letter. He's speaking against the practices of the Old Covenant. Why are you, as a body, why are you as people trusting in the Old Covenant? Why are you doing these things? You need to be doing what is right and just in accordance to, to the New Covenant. And that certainly flows out into our day-to-day -day life. But I believe the author has a specific focus, especially within the context of the body. What are you guys doing? Make sure your worship is acceptable, reverent, and with awe. So, Let's talk about those three things. We want our worship to God to be acceptable. How do we know it is? Well, first and foremost, it has to be through Christ. It has to be with faith. 
Right, Hebrews 13, 15, the author gets explicit with this. Through him, that's Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In other words, without Christ, you can't offer it. It's got to go through him first. And then going backwards to Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever will draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So our, our praise, our worship must be done through Christ, through faith, not through priests. Right? For the Hebrews, it would be through Levitical priests. For, for those today, it could be the Roman Catholic priesthood. It could be the Mormons. It could, it could be through any other priesthood that's not the Melchizedekian priesthood, that's not Christ. Let us offer worship that's acceptable, and we, and we do this on the basis, we make sure that the worship that we do is done on the basis of his work, not our work, as if we are the ones that make the worship worthy, as if, well, because of how I lived my life this week, the worship that I'm giving to God is now worthy to him or acceptable. No, it's worthy, it's acceptable to him because, again, of Christ. It's, it's on the basis of his work. When we sing songs, we must not sing as, as an act of, of, of boasting about Look at what we have done. Look at what I have done. Look at all or, or a celebration of what we have done. We only boast in him and him alone. When we sing, we sing to remind ourselves of what he has done for us. Or we sing of his goodness for us. And we need to be careful. I mentioned this briefly last week. But we need to be careful that when we sing of the goodness of God and what he has done for us, that we're not strictly thinking of the material things the health and prosperity that he's given us. Yes, it is good to be thankful of those things. We need to be thankful of those things. But after we are thankful of our salvation, of our deliverance from sin. See, when we focus on the goodness of God being explicitly connected to our sin and us being rescued, us being ransomed by his blood, then those other good things become even better. Because then we think, you have saved me. You've given me everlasting life, and yet you bless me more? Like, this is great. This is fantastic. And at the same time, you've given me everlasting life, and, and you've saved me from my sin, and, and, and I lack a lot of things in this life, but I'm good with it because I have all that I need. So when we sing of his goodness, when we sing of, of his grace towards us, we need to make sure that it, it's first focused on our salvation, our deliverance from sins, and doesn't get hung up on the material aspects. We sing to glorify him, not ourselves, nor anything that we love to include this nation. We gather to offer him praise. We offer worship that is reverent, that is with respect. Let us be mindful on what we are doing, how we do it, why we do it, or what's the posture of our hearts and souls. So in, in church, this plays out in a variety of ways. We, we need to consider who can lead music. Who can, can preach? It's not just anyone. It's the character, the qualifications of the person matters. How do we view baptism and communion? Something that's commanded, something that is meant to be celebrated in Scripture. Jesus has told us to do these things, so we take it and we go, well, it's kind of inconvenient, so we'll do baptism quickly, either at the start of the service or at the end of the service. We'll do it by video, and we don't really need to have any, anyone there. Just do it really quickly. Or communion. You know, it, it just really ties things up. People get bored of it. It's, it's, it's dry. So we'll do it once a month, every other month, once a year, six months, whatever it may be. Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? The songs that we choose. 
can't be flippant with that. What's the purpose of us singing the songs that we're singing? Do they edify? Do they build up? Do they remind us of things? Or is it all about feeling good? The creeds that we might say. We don't say creeds in this church, not regularly anyway. Um, I, I don't think we've ever, we might have recited the Nicene Creed once. But does the creed that we say, is it true? Does it edify? Right? There's just recently, this made the news, a church in the ELCA had the Sparkle Creed, uh, a disgusting, blasphemous creed calling God non-binary pronouns, they, them, just horrible. So we don't want to do that. That's definitely irreverent. How we pray matters. We need to be mindful of the words we say, what we speak about. We need to be mindful of how we come to and prepare for church. Right? Coming to, to gather in this holy assembly is, is not a small thing. This, is, this ought to be the climax of the week. This is, this is a visit for you to prepare you for the rest of the week. So we don't treat church as, well, only if I get up in time. Well, what does that say about the God that you claim to love? About your priorities? Or about the bride of Christ? Well, you might not think you get too much out of it, but what about your brothers and sisters in Christ who look forward to you, they want you there, they need you there because you're a blessing to them. What we do during the service, we need to be mindful of. It's not that you can't go up and use the bathroom talk and all that stuff, but we need to be mindful what we're doing, why we're doing it. Like, this isn't the time to, to check fantasy sports teams, uh, to check the score of the games, or whatever it may be, or, or, or the news. This is to hear the voice of God. He is the one who is speaking. And so your heart, what you do, is a reflection of your heart. So, so, so be mindful of what you are doing. And we offer worship with awe. Now, what does this mean to offer worship with awe? Essentially, this is the emotional side. We offer worship with emotion. See, worship is meant to be emotional. We are emotional creatures, not emotionless. Maybe this is the most charismatic I'll, I'll get. Emotions should be driven first by truth. And that's the key here. Right? We, we're called to be emotional beings. But emotional beings that have their emotions, one, controlled and driven by truth. Not just wild emotions, not just going ec ecstatic, just not just having like chaos, right? Our God is a God of order and peace. So the truth and the shared fellowship that we experience here should drive our emotions. Our hearts should quicken when we sing hymns about the glory of God, the victory of God, and the glory to come, and, and what he has done for us. We should be encouraged by that. We should at times weep over that. The truth should drive our emotions rather than the notes, the rhythm, or the energy of the song. Now, we can certainly use those things and take truth and add those things to it, but they cannot be the driving force. It is good, it is okay for emotions to be felt, to be expressed. Emotions are the breaths of the soul. They were given to us by God for our good. Just make sure that they are driven by truth. And when we do worship well, it will. When I go to conferences and I hear thousands of men who can't sing, singing a hymn, your emotions get going. You get ready for war. It's like, this is good. And men, you need to sing more, right? We need more men who can't sing to sing in churches with the loud, baritone voices like their drums and just bell out the truths of the gospel. 
There is something about it that will get your heart going. You've seen the national anthem. You've seen your alma mater song. You have no problems doing that, but you come to church. Well, I know this is about my salvation, about the God I love so much, but eh, I'm just not going to sing. So you keep quiet. Sing. It's a gift to you. It's a gift to others. I would sing more myself, but my ear, it actually acts up, and I actually can't hear anything when I sing Lelo myself. So even now it's acting up, and I sometimes can't hear my voice. But sometimes, and sometimes my point being there is sometimes physically you just can't sing. But if you can, regardless of how you sound, sing. Let it be loud, under control, right, just like our emotions, but let it be loud. Worship becomes unacceptable. It becomes irreverent when we refuse him who is speaking. When we rely more on pragmatism than him. When we think we can do more for the kingdom outside his word. Or when we think we know, but we know how to reach the people of this age. We, we know what the culture needs. We know how to make worship fun, attractive, exciting. We know how to make church cozy and, 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 and to make people who, who are sensitive or, or whatever it may be. We, we know how to meet their felt needs better than what the word of God does. Or when we think that his word is no longer sufficient. That's an old book. It can't speak to the problems of today. It doesn't know us. It doesn't know our society. We are different. We are a democracy. After all, we're founded on Christian principles. Or we refuse him simply when we call him Lord, Lord, and we don't obey him. Right? People don't like lordship salvation as if, well, he can be Savior and not Lord. I can believe in him and I don't have to obey him. Well, Jesus says otherwise, Luke 6, 46, right? And this warning is tied to Matthew uh, 7, 21. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. How can you say, how can you profess faith in Christ and then not do what he says? So we need to listen to him. And we do this. Verse 29, because our God is a consuming fire. Now the author here, he's referring to Deuteronomy 4.24, where Moses writes, Take care lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God, and this is God speaking to Moses, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that Yah Yahweh your God has forbidden you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now consider the context. Moses is writing this about if you commit covenantal unfaithfulness, He's going to hold you to your account. He's going he's to judge you because he's a jealous God, meaning it's not that he's insecure, but since he is holy, perfect, and perfectly just, he's a righteous God. His name will not be blasphemed. He will not allow his grace to be taken for granted. He will hold people accounted, accountable to their actions. He has, how much does he love the world? He sent his son for your sin. He's done all that he needs to do, and if you refuse that, his justice, his holiness demands that he reckon with you. And if you don't have his son before him advocating for you, there's a consuming fire awaiting you. So though judgment awaits those who forsake him, those who ignore him, God has made a way. Right? This is, this, don't miss this. The author is implying this. He's kind of meant this. We have come to Mount Zion. A way has been made for those who love him to enjoy him. 
for those to be in a right relationship with him. A way has been made for those to draw near to him, and that's through the new covenant. That's through the priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's by his blood, not by the old covenant, not by other means. It's by his blood once for all. All the work that you need to draw near to him has been done for you by him. Nothing else that you need to do. Thus, we ought to be grateful that we can be near to him, that we can come to him. And in doing so, let us not refuse his teaching, which is an act of grace given us so that we may know holiness. So let us offer to him worship that is acceptable, reverent, and filled with awe because he has spoken. And we do so remembering that whatever pain, whatever hardship, whatever persecution may come our way for such faithfulness, you're such a bigot. How can you believe in this? You're so narrow-minded. Why are you so archaic? Why are you so patriarchal? Whatever derogatory term you want to use that's thrown our way these days, endure it. You lose your home, your job, whatever may come. It pales in comparison to the judgment God will bring upon those who refuse him and deny him by forsaking him. For he is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your mercy, your grace. We ask that you would help us to bear up under your truth, especially if, if there are those among here who are experiencing conviction or maybe even confusion. Maybe some are confused. What does this mean? What does this look like? Maybe this teaching is new to them. We ask that your spirit would help bring clarity to the life, that the body of Christ, those here, would help speak truth into lives, that you'd give them words to speak, and that you'd give them confidence and peace to walk the straight and narrow road that you ask us to, Father. Father, help us to endure all that is before us, the things that we do not know are coming. Help us to have the strength that we need for the days that you've given us so that we may live them out in faithfulness. Father, may we remember one another in prayer. May we remember one another in deeds as well. May we seek one another out. May we not walk this life alone, but in fellowship and truth, by your grace, by the blood of your Son, with confidence as we draw near to you. May we not neglect one another. Father, help us to be faithful in all things. And we ask you to bless the table before us, the bread and the cup, as we come to the table that you would convict convict by the spirit of the sins in our lives that we would confess that we would seek repentance and as we come we would be encouraged to repentance that we would have the strength that we need that we would be reminded that the work it is done it is finished that you that by the blood of your son we are cleansed we can't clean ourselves so father help us to come to the table um, confessing our sins recognizing that what we celebrate is what cleanses us of the, the shed blood of your son and that it is done, it is finished. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. So give us the faith that we need to believe in it, to trust in it. And as we go from here, Father, help us to live holy lives, remembering that you are coming and you're sending your son to judge the, the righteous and the unrighteous. So help us to be faithful witnesses of your word until that day. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.